Well, we'll be starting in Matthew 19. If you weren't here for the announcements, I'm still Rob Jacobson, and I'm glad you're with us today. Matthew chapter 19 starts with this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judah, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus said, Haven't you read? That at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, then it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word, even when it baffles us, even when it confuses us, even when we may not like what it says, we thank you for it. We pray that we would hear your word, that your word and your spirit would come through today more than I would, and that you'd give us open ears, open eyes, and open hearts to hear what you're saying. Amen. Well, doesn't this sound like a little bit of a dilemma? I mean, the Pharisees have come and asked Jesus a question. In particular, they'd already had an answer for it. So I think Jesus is saying something like, well, you know, if Jesus says yes, yes, Moses did say that, yes, you can get a divorce for any and every reason, then the Pharisees are going to go say that I'm going against God's prohibition of divorce and they're probably going to tell the local ruler who happened to marry another man's wife uh, before she was divorced about this and he might have something to say about it. But if I say no, then they're going to say I'm going against God's law which was given through Moses. There's the dilemma. Furthermore, there were two schools of thought Okay, the first school of thought was the conservative view that said the only time you should get divorced is when there's adultery. That's it. And the other, that, that's the conservative view. The other school of view was the more liberal view, which was, yeah, you can pretty much get divorced for any and every reason. There was interpretations of the way that Deuteronomy 24 talks about it. And, you know, you could say that really if the person crosses you in a way that you don't like, then, then it's okay. And you can go look in the Jewish commentaries and this is what it talks about. So we've got these 
two main views. Now, I want you to try and imagine a time and a place where people of the same faith could be in such different views. Right? I know that's going to be hard for you. <laughs> right? Like they could be like so conservative and so liberal in the same faith. <sighs> I know, I know, I know it's a little hard. So I think, I think Jesus actually sees this dilemma. And he might even think, well, gosh, if I go with the conservative view, you know what they're going to call me? They're going to call me a hater because I'm being so, so strict. But if I go with the liberal view, you know, they're going to call me a sinner and say that I ignore the Bible. What am I going to do? Ever feel like you've been in a situation like this? Somebody throws something out at you and you have this huge dilemma. What I love about Jesus is he never settles when things start to polarize. In fact, I think Jesus answers this question with what I'd like to propose as a trilemma. Maybe it's just because I wanted to use that word. I'm pretty sure it's a word. You know, it's not a dilemma, it's a trilemma. So just walk with me through the scripture for a minute, and I think there's a better way in this trilemma. The first part of the trilemma is to ask, where are you? Where are you when the person asks this question? Where are you when you're in a situation that's a dilemma, that's a polarizing thing? And, you know, when we just look at the scripture, where's Jesus? If we go back to verse 1, it seems like it's this thing that doesn't matter, but I would say it matters greatly. When Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee, and normally they would go back down to Judah. But... If you move from Galilee to get to Judah, you've got to go through Samaria. Nobody likes to do that. So you go around the Sea of Galilee, you go down the other side of the Jordan. Well, that, that area is called Perea. It's, it's a Jewish country. It's a Jewish part of Israel at that time as well. So he's in this region of Perea. And the thing you need to know about Perea is, see, Herod the Great, you might have heard his name before when Jesus was born. Herod the Great had all of this land, all of these regions, and he was ruthless and he was cunning. He killed a few of his sons. He had some of his wives killed because he was a little paranoid. But the point of the story is, After he died, three of his sons got three out of the four areas of his former country. The fourth being occupied by Rome, the Roman procreator, governor, Pontius Pilate. So one of his sons is named Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch. He was the one that ruled over Perea. He was the one who happened in Matthew 14. He happened to uh, take his brother Herod Philip's wife, Herodias, who was still married to Philip and married her. And John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, and he says, you know, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. God isn't pleased with that. Now, King David, many years before this, had a prophet, much like John the Baptist, named Nathan, who came to him and said, hey, King David, you shouldn't do that. And King David got on his knees and wept and and poured his heart out to God and confessed. Herod had John imprisoned and later beheaded. That's the region he's in. And King Herod, that Herod, gets to make the laws for that place. You've got to think about where you're at. 
when someone asks you a question like this. Knowing where you are is about understanding our culture or understanding society. See, I think Jesus understood that he was under someone else's law that King Herod could make the laws and enforce the laws in this place. And the, the Pharisees actually who came to this region were likely from Judah where you get to be a little more autonomous, have a little bit more self-law in Judah because the Roman governor is governed by these checks and balances in Rome. So he has a little less autonomy, which therefore gives the Pharisees a little more autonomy. Here's why I go down that road. Self-law or autonomous law, is the world that we now live in. When you think about the the highest values in the United States right now are probably autonomy and tolerance. Not criticizing them, it's just probably where we're at. Now, we used to live in a time where people of faith had the power. And sometimes, people of faith use that power. They use that power to minimize people that had alternative lifestyles. They use that power to ignore hurting vulnerable people. And they use that power to even reject people because they might be attracted in ways that seemed, um, I think an appropriate word would be queer or unusual or different. That's not the case anymore. People of faith, more and more, don't have the power. Self-law is the rule of the land. You see it in statements like, well, that's true for you, but not for me. Or, you know, you shouldn't judge someone by their behaviors or their choices. Or, well, it's fine. Do whatever you want, just as long as no one gets hurt. And this is the world that we live in. And so when someone asks the, the frequently asked question that was listed a few weeks ago, what does God say about our sexuality? Or what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Or even, one was, why is God against homosexuality? You have to know where you are. So, usually these questions are not asked in a hypothetical, like they seem to be asked in Matthew 19. So imagine... Todd walks in, he's 24 years old, and he works downtown, and he's just moved to Apple Valley. He's come to church three times by himself, and after a five-minute conversation with you, he asks, so, what does your church believe about same-gender relationships? What do you say? Got your tongue? Well, since you're silent, uh, I'll, I'll continue. So the second part of the trilemma, I'll come back. The second part of the trilemma is asking, where's God? Where's God in their question? Where's God in the situation? Not just where are you, but where is God? Since we have the whole story here, I think we can confidently say that the Pharisees' question was not focused on God. If you read through it again, you'll see that they don't reference God in any way, shape, or form other than this little, like, well, Moses gave us the law, but it was completely detached from God. I think that's significant. So it was either about trapping Jesus or about the boundaries of where sin is or not sin. Okay, why is it that people, all people, 
but especially religious people, love, love to just debate about where the boundary line is. And I'll say all people, because when my wife and I bought our first house, we did it, with, and we didn't get a land survey. We had it inspected, but, you know, the former owners said, you know, this is about where the property line is, and this is about where the property line is, and I bet they were within six inches of the actual property lines. This is our first house. I'm so excited. And so you can be darn sure that I got a new mower, first of all, because I had a job, so I got a mower, and I proudly mowed that lawn right up to the property line. And I was happy. Except I was a little bit shocked when my, one of my neighbors came out, and you know what he did? He mowed his lawn the next day over the line. He was at least one pass over the line. Now, I would love to say that my response was looking out the window, oh, that is so gracious. I mean, think about the wear and tear on my lawnmower, first of all, and, and the time and the gasoline, that, that one pass that's probably 100 feet long. I mean, if he continues to do that for the rest of the time I own the house, this could literally save me tens or maybe hundreds of dollars. That's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank him for that. Uh, that was not my response. My wife is laughing. You know, some people go a little ballistic about this. Some people put up fences to, to go around their yard over, over these things, over six inches or maybe 12. See, I think that this is just who we are. That's not who we were created to be, but it's who we are. We love to focus on the boundaries. And we miss, we miss the sacred intention of what having a home represents. A place to be known, a place of security, a place to be loved. That's the central sacred intention of having a home. And we miss it because we're fighting or arguing or focused on six inches. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. And so when we ask, where is God in, in the trilemma, we're asking, what is sacred? Now, Jesus says, haven't you read? He created them male and female. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the creator of the universe is in day six. Everything's getting bigger and better, which is funny because, you know, it's hard to be bigger and better than the universe and the sky and the stars and the sun and the moon. But for some reason, he highlights the pinnacle of his creation as humanity. And he says, let us make God in our image and in our likeness so that they will rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created humankind or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. First thing that we see that is sacred is that God is in us. Let us create humanity. God isn't just a him. God is gender full, not gender less. Which means that every man is created in the image of God and every woman is created in the image of God. 
That means that everything that is truly masculine is in God's intent and image. And everything that's truly feminine is in God's intent and image. We can't start debating which is and isn't part of God. All of it is part of God. Stop and think about that. That God is represented as an us. Father, Son, and Spirit. And us created something. Out of that three-in-one togetherness image, God creates humanity. And he says in Genesis 2, it's not good for the human to be alone. Why? Was it simply because that human was only one gender? Or he needed friendship or she needed friendship? Or was it the reality that one gender can't accurately represent who God is? I think it is just as much the latter. So God blessed them in Genesis 1, 28 and says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that lives on the ground. So both genders are needed to multiply, but what's also true of all of humanity is that both genders, married or not, are called to bring forth good from the earth and from each other. That's what God has called us to do. That's part of our divine creation and our divine intention, to see and cultivate good in someone else and to see it come out, and to see and cultivate the good of the earth and have that come out. You don't need to be married to do that. I would say you do need to be in community because he does say it's not good for us to be alone. And so being made in the image of God means that each and every one of us is created to reflect God's divine image, to worship God and to serve him, and to live for his glory. So Jesus, I think, has a higher view of marriage, certainly than culture, but even then, since his people had continued to follow God, as you see through the book of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he has a holistic view of God's word and of marriage. He says, haven't you read that in the beginning God made them male and female, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. In the English translation, we think of one flesh as just a physical union, but one flesh or all flesh really means the whole person in the Hebrew. It means all of us. And so what I think Jesus is saying here is that, yes, God created people male and female, and he provided that as marriage, but that marriage was intended on pointing to something so much bigger than just two people being together. It was pointing towards, and Ephesians 5 says it, the mystery of Christ and the church and how God and Christ are one and how we are invited to be one as we follow him. So yes, Jesus, if you're looking for an answer, yes, Jesus is saying that a publicly declared, legally binding, lifelong, permanent marriage is the one place for sexual union. And anything that diverges from that is not what God intended. I think he's saying that. I think our church embraces that. 
I think our group of churches, I know our group of churches embraces that. You might disagree with that, and I'd love to continue the conversation because that it shouldn't stop there. Now, I'm pretty confident that there's at least a few of you that think that's too narrow. I think Matthew 5 is a little too narrow when Jesus reinforces this. He says, you know, the law says that you should not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So if your eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out and throw it away because better you lose an eye and get eternity with God than your whole body go to hell. I think that's a little narrow. I think it's a little extreme. I think if we were honest, we'd all have at least one eye out. So, the religious leaders even think this is too narrow. Because they say, well, then why did Moses, why did he command that a man be able to give his wife a certificate of divorce? See, Jesus said, well, God permitted divorce or Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hard. And I think the religious leaders did what so many of us do. We argue about where the line is. Well, we just want to know when it's okay to commit or not commit wholly to another person. Okay? That's what marriage is, right? We just want to know when it's okay or not okay to commit to another person, wholly and fully. Because that's, that's what marriage is supposed to be, Jesus says. If you, can't, if you can't mentally, socially, relationally, socioeconomically, and permanently commit to someone, then you shouldn't physically commit to them. And instead, these religious leaders are just saying, when is it okay and when is it not okay? Imagine if they would have said this. Just imagine if they would have said this. Jesus, so many of us have broken relationships with, I mean, if we're honest, with ourselves and with God, but with others. We don't know how to commit fully to another person. How could we, how could we do this? Imagine what Jesus' response might have been. Because that's where the religious leaders went, and that's actually where the disciples went. Well, Jesus, if this is it, it's better not to get married. We're just gonna, we just want to throw in the towel. We don't even want to try. Again, why? Because we don't know how to commit totally and fully to another person. Which, if you think about what Jesus has been doing along the way, should be a bit of irony, friends. You want to know what discipleship is? Follow me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come with me. Commit fully to me. And they're like, we can't. We can't do it. So Jesus moves to the third part of the trilemma. Not just where are you, and not just where is God, but where is the other person? Where are they coming from? Where are they moving towards? And Jesus says, not everybody can accept this, but only those to whom it's been given. And then, and then he talks about eunuchs who've been born this way, eunuchs who've been made eunuchs, and then those who choose to live like eunuchs, celibate and abstinent, for the sake of the kingdom of God. 
Now you think about that, and if you've studied Old Testament law, you'll know that eunuchs did not get to be priests. They did not get to enter the assembly. In fact, in Isaiah 56, the eunuch laments that I'm only a dry tree, that I can't reproduce, that I can't go into God's kingdom. And Isaiah says, no, 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 there's gonna come a time where you get to enter the courts of God. There's gonna come a time when you have a spiritual heritage that you get to reproduce and multiply and bear God's image in the world that you don't rely on little children to do that. Jesus is lifting up singleness in a way that's unheard of and completely countercultural. This is not... This chapter, and I would say the scriptures, especially the New Testament, is not some repressive, outdated, emoted speech about how culture lives. I mean, it is radically countercultural, and I think it still speaks to us today. If you think about it, the single person can't rely on kids to take care of them. The single person can't show, like, can't put their hope in children, and Jesus saying, absolutely, that's why it's so amazing. That's why it's so amazing, because they are putting their hope and their trust in God and God alone. That's why he's lifting it up. I think that's why it's living. Furthermore, look what follows this story. I never understood this until I was preparing for this. Okay, he talks about marriage, I get that. He talks about eunuchs, I guess I kind of get that. Then he says, then all of a sudden he interrupts it, and Matthew brings this story about little children who are coming to Jesus. Well, if you're a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl, the time you can come under the law is 12 years old. They have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, and that's the first time they can really be under the law. Up until then, they, they really can't. And so these are little children that can't come under the law, but can come under Jesus? Are you picking up what he's putting down here? Like, the standard is so high that most of us, if we truly are honest, we fall terribly short of it. Not only that, but we raise up marriage as this ideal and we give second class or third class or fourth class to anyone that's different than that, to anyone who struggles with their gender identity, to anyone that struggles with their attraction, to anyone that struggles with not being married and being single. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you don't put your hope in your children. Certainly, children are a sign from God that he still cares about the world but we don't put our trust in them and we don't put our hope in them. We don't put our worth in them. Furthermore, this, this completely de-idolizes marriage as a goal. And instead, marriage is supposed to point to the amazing union that God has in the Father, Son, and Spirit and in the love that he can have for us. It points to something bigger and better and that's how we should see it. And so we grow up. These little children quickly come to Jesus, trust him, and and are focused centrally on him. They're not arguing over whether someone mows on this side or this side. And we grow up, and we get adult desires. And we might identify more with feminine things or more with masculine things. We might identify with or become attracted to someone more than another person. And Jesus says, you know, stop debating over where the line is. Put me above yourself, above your desires, 
above your gender, your gender clarity or your gender confusion. And seek me because yes, God gave us our sexuality and it's good, it's part of who we are. God gave us our desires. Most of the time those, those were meant to be good but they got twisted in the fall. I would say even our orientations fall into that line. They're not just an appetite that we're supposed to fill. And they're not something that's evil or dirty because they're connected to our body. Jesus came as a spiritual being in a bodily form, raising up the value of a body. So to say that things that are connected to our body are not spiritual is false. But I would also say that those things are a part of who we are, but they are deeply connected to our heart. And our heart, God says, is something we have to guard because our heart can easily twist things and can easily rebel against God. Lauren Winner, a Christian writer, says, we're created in particular ways with particular longings and desires and impulses. And those desires have become distorted in the fall, but they are still here with us, shaping our wants and our actions and our thoughts and our wishes. So I think what Jesus would say to us is that we need him to guide our hearts regardless of where we're at or how we identify ourselves. And so the good news is that Jesus says, anyone can come to me, anyone. There shouldn't be an us and a them in the kingdom of God. In fact, Galatians 3.28 says, because of Christ, we're all God's children. There is no slave nor free socioeconomic status. There is no Jew or Gentile ethnic status, and there is no male or female gender differentiation. Those things do not qualify the kingdom. Being one in Christ does. If you take a look at this, the reason I have these icebergs up here is because so often we look at what's above the surface and we see that we can't identify, I think it's the next slide, we think we can't identify with someone that might be very different from us or just might have very different beliefs from us. But the reality is that once you look under the surface and you see all the things that affect our heart, all the things, envy, greed, materialism, lust, jealousy, discrimination, racism, sexual immorality, however it presents itself. You see that under the surface, the icebergs are connected. We're one in Christ. We all need Jesus. And God gives us the ultimate gift of choice. And that's a very good thing. But what God does not give us is the ability to determine the outcome of that choice. And some of us are sitting in a huge pain and brokenness because we've made choices relationally or physically or romantically that we feel the burden and the pain from. And Jesus says, come to me, any of you who are weary and burdened, any of you, and I will give you rest for your weary souls. Put my teaching on you. 
which is not heavy and not a burden. Love me, love people. Love them so much that you're so much more concerned about your own sin that you can accept wherever they are regardless of their sin. So back to the FAQ as we close. So Todd's 24 and he asks you that question. What does your church believe about same gender relationships? Well, we've just heard Jesus redirect the boundaries and put it back on the central point of coming to him. And further, if we know Jesus, we know that he gives us the command to love one another. And so I would say, Todd, you ask a really good and honest question and I want to give you a really honest and thorough answer. Because I want to go to a church that I can agree with and that, that really truly cares about people. So would you be willing to share the answer you're hoping I give first. I don't know if that person would be able to do that. But if he doesn't, then, well, I don't like to discuss theology with people who aren't my friends, but I'd like to become your friend, so maybe we could have coffee or go out to lunch a few times. First time we go out to lunch, you could tell me some of your story, where you grew up, what you like, your interests, your hobbies. Next time we go out, I could tell you about mine. Next time we go out, you could tell me about your beliefs, what you think about the Bible, and what you think about this topic. And then the next time we go out, I could tell you about what I think. But before we do that, do you think that we could still be friends after we go through these things? Because we might not agree at the end. But I want to give you that choice. If you think about the fact that so many people who we might call alternative lifestyle, which I don't really like that word, and, and I know that people um, that identify as gay or lesbian or queer or bisexual or transgender don't like that word either. But if you think about the fact that they've always felt different, they've often felt rejected, someone who asks that question is anticipating being rejected. Can you imagine if you gave them the power to reject you instead? Especially if you fit into a majority description. I think it would transform the way that we interact with people and it would transform the way that we interpret this question. It would transform the way that we actually feel God's love towards us. See, someone's behavior change isn't the goal. Someone's heart being changed for Jesus is the goal. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that we could internalize this, this pause when we are faced with the dilemma and faced with the polarization, that we would see there is another option. There is a third way. So I pray that we would ask ourselves where we are in the midst of a question or a hard situation, I pray that we would ask God where you are in that situation and where you might be leading another person. And God, I pray that we would ask where that other person is, where they are. God, that we would hear your Holy Spirit and hear the cry of their heart and the whisper of their heart to, that, that very likely is to know you. Not the social expectations, definitely not the relational condemnation, not the religiosity, but the fact that, God, you love the world so much 
that you gave your one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, would we be people that would believe that with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength.